Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I am your host, Toby. AlphaList is a closed community with over 400 CTOs who share their knowledge and experience in a Slack space and at events. With this podcast, we want to give our members and interested parties insights into the thoughts and ideas of top CTOs. If you're interested in becoming a member of the community, please visit alphalist.com to find out more on how to apply. This episode is kindly supported by Fastly, the biggest challenger in the CDN market. Fastly is pushing ahead the technical boundaries and is, from my perspective, the best solution on the market. Fastly is known as one of the key drivers of the Edge Cloud movement. Well-known customers of Fastly are Shopify, the New York Times, Reddit, GitHub, and many, many more. If you want to try it all with first-class support, just go to fastly.com slash alphalist. Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I'm your host, Toby, and today I welcome Eric Bowman, the SVP of engineering at TomTom in Berlin. Hi, Eric. Hi, Toby. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Um, I actually, we actually met at Zalando. Uh, we were both working at Zalando and I think you were acting as the VP of engineering back then. And I perceived you as a guy who's, who always carries that inspirational aura um, around yourself uh, when it comes to leadership topics, um, technical topics as well. Um, and yeah, maybe you can tell us a bit more today about the important milestones um, in your career um, and maybe also start with that. So um, where, where did you start your career and um, where you now? Sure. Yeah, it's funny uh, because honestly, I never wanted to be a leader. I, I was an individual contributor for a long time and I kind of one by one watched um, some of my favorite people move in the leadership direction. And I was a little bit like, why would you do that? That just doesn't seem like fun at all. Um, so by the time I got around to it, I took it pretty seriously. But maybe I'll, yeah, I can back up a little bit. Uh, I grew up in the, in the uh, United States and I really, most of my childhood, I wanted to be a physicist. Um, I, I thought that maybe an academic uh, lifestyle was kind of perfect for me. I had no interest in any kind of business or any kind of management or anything kind of commercial. I really wanted to do a life of the mind. Um, and the whole time I was doing that, I was also programming computers. And, and uh, I think, you know, a lot of people who study physics get to the point where they realize that the people who make kind of like lasting impact in, in physics are so much smarter than everyone else that when you realize that you're just not that smart, you realize maybe this is not going to be all that satisfying. Um, also, you know, I don't know, working in, uh, in the more commercial world, uh, success is a little bit more objective sometimes, especially when you're struggling, you know, to make some kind of research impact. Um, and I really, really loved, uh, writing computer programs as well. And then I got incredibly lucky. My first sort of real job, uh, was working at Maxis, which at the time, uh, was known for SimCity 2000 and, um, I was not really a game player, but I knew that game. You know, it was like on the cover of Time Everyone Magazine. Everyone knew it, right? <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, it was a global phenomenon. And it was just so cool, you know. And I didn't really like uh, computer games that much. Um, 
But I thought that sounded great. And I found an ad, you know, on Usenet a long time ago. And I, w- I really needed a job and uh, kind of talked my, myself into it. And, you know, I kind of stayed up late the night before playing SimCity so that I could maybe fake my way through that part. And uh, and then I got – I actually – Did you get into programming earlier or, I mean um... – Yeah, I was yeah I was programming when I was uh, studying physics on the side for money. Basically, my college would pay students to write software uh, that was used by the school, and then uh, uh, I ended up staying a couple years after I graduated to continue because some of the software that I'd written uh, was pretty helpful. They got more funding for that, um, but that just sort of allowed me to extend my college experience. It was not. The most, not the most productive time in my life, really. I, it was a good life, but at some point, it was like, okay, I need to get on now, and uh, and got pretty lucky, you know, on on my first job. Although, you know, I I wasn't willing to compromise uh, my principles. I was not going to take some boring job, you know, and uh, I was I went immediately for. Uh, what seemed like the most interesting job and was kind of lucky to get it. In fact, I, uh, to this day, I'm kind of grateful because the, the, the very famous book, um, design patterns, also called the gang of four book had just been published. It was one of the first books I ever bought, uh, from amazon.com in about 1995. And I got to the interview at Maxis and I was a little bit early and I sat in my rental car in the parking lot in San Mateo, California, reading this book. And, uh, And I read about the flyweight pattern and then I went into the interview and they asked me a question, the answer to which was the flyweight pattern. <laughs> <laughs> so you cheated your way through. That <laughs> was not cheating. That was luck. That was luck. I was totally not. Uh, I was a little bit dishonest, I have to admit. I hadn't. I mean, I really hadn't played SimCity uh, too much before the day before the interview. Um, but that I mean, that was such a great thing. And and. Uh, such a unique experience and formative in so many ways for me. And yet also such an anti-pattern of experiences in so many ways. You know, we, I mean, agile didn't exist yet. People didn't write unit tests. Um, we just coded all the time and um, spent years on this thing. It was kind of the darling of uh, the founder and creator of SimCity, Will Wright. And, Nobody thought it was going to go anywhere and for, for until pretty much till the very end. And so we just kind of dawdled around on this thing, trying to make it cooler and cooler. And then I mean, it gradually like a snowball and started to get more and more momentum as we got closer to launch. Um, but it was, you know, we, we did all these things that you're not supposed to do, really, uh, including, I mean, I was probably working 80-hour weeks. It was the last sweatshirt, right? No one was asking it, though. That was the yeah. thing. I mean... It was, it. I mean, I felt lucky at that point in my life. I, I didn't have that much going on yet. You know, my girlfriend was pretty understanding. She loved the game uh, when she saw it for the first <laughs> time. And, and, you know, it was just like, why not? You know, I felt lucky, honestly. It, it was the to Sims, To be able to work right? on something like that. Yeah, so that became the Sims, exactly. And, uh, and so when I, you know, when you read about sweatshop conditions for game companies and things like that, it's like, yeah, but... At the same time, when you're in that mode and you're in that kind of time in your life, you're kind of lucky also that there that you have something that you feel good working that hard on. And did you did you code a C back then or what what was yeah. it? Okay. Yeah, the Sims was 100% C plus plus. No, 
no assembly code whatsoever, um, which was kind of a surprise to uh, the other people. So we got acquired partway through by Electronic Arts and suddenly we were surrounded by a lot more kind of game professionals. And we sort of did everything against their advice in a way and got kind of lucky, I think. We didn't use 3D acceleration. It wasn't really a 3D game. It was kind of a fake 3D game. Everything was CPU. Everything was, was uh, you know, we created the broadest platform to run this thing. And I think that turned out to be a great decision because it meant many, many more people got to play it. And also uh, we drove up the price of RAM, I think. But anyhow. Really, really reminds you of the conversation I had with John Romero once, um, uh, one of the founders of id Software, and uh, I think like one of the key designers behind Doom, and uh, like he was talking about how they handcrafted Doom um, and like nights and night shifts um, following each other, um, and I, I can imagine that it was kind of even if it if it was like still 15 years earlier, if it was that it was similar at, at Maxis, right? And yeah. Um, How do you compare it to today's orgs? I mean, you worked at Zalando, you're working at TomTom now. I think at both companies, you you you, you had like around 1.5k engineers. Um, how does that compare? And more importantly, is it something you miss every once in a while that you have the, those small and effective teams uh, that uh, want to code night by night? Yeah, well, you know, I still kind of hold in my heart the belief that three good programmers can change the world. And uh, whenever possible, I like to put a team of three on something um, if it's really important and it's possible. But I think also, you know, even though, you know, there's the kind of this old saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. And if you want to go far, go together. Um, I think that applies to teams as well. Um I think, you know, we know a lot more about how to organize than we did uh, 20 years ago. Um, or at least it's, you know, it's been thought through more. It turns out a lot, I mean, in a way, we don't know anything more than has been known for quite a while about how organizations are structured. But it, we, maybe we're a little less um, arrogant in terms of ignoring <laughs> ignoring what's come before us. Um, but, you know, I don't know. It, it's... Uh, I wouldn't trade. I wouldn't trade the the present. Really, I think um, you know everything kind of builds on each other, and certainly in the same way that uh, software, you know, you got to worry everything from the bit level to terabytes these days. Organizations are kind of the same. You know, it's pretty. It, it's I'm pretty happy that I had this experience of the very intense. I mean, honestly, working that small team was pretty emotional. Um. We spent a lot of time together and went through kind of intense and, and kind of a meaningful experience together. And some days we probably hated each other, you know, um, and imagine. but knowing what that's like is helpful, you know. And, and do you ever every once in a while have that moment where you think, oh, that microservice architecture, what I've built here, what what we created here is kind of very, very complex and potentially too complex um, for, 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 for us to handle? Um, do you every once in a while have that? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And, um, I think, you know, working on anything that's sufficiently complex, it exceeds any human's ability to really keep it all in working memory. And so, you know, you sort of develop 
the ability to kind of apply situational awareness and instinct to whatever part of the system you're looking at, hopefully to figure out the rest. And I'm not sure it's that different now than it was even then. Like I I remember uh, when I was working on The Sims, um, getting the graphics to work was really, really hard. It took a a good year even to get scrolling to be smooth and figuring out how to minimize the redrawing and just try it again and again and again. And I finally, I felt like I had figured it out and I had to rewrite a ton of code. And in the middle of this, I had to go to the office uh, for, to go to some all hands. And at the end, you know, the general manager, Max, just wanted to talk to me to see how it was going. And I was just like, you don't understand. I have to get back to my house because I've taken this thing apart. It's all over my apartment and I have to put it back together again before I forget, you know, how it all fit together. And I feel like even even a big distributed system, it's kind of similar, right? It's uh, most of the time you can work kind of locally and occasionally you, you need to go through these kind of very scary and intense uh, transformations where, where you know the totality is too complicated to really understand. And so things like what programming language did you use? How many, you know, how smart were you in terms of, of creating tests that are meaningful, how well did you apply the kind of principles of distributed systems is kind of the same thing. And, and, and I think, you know, one of the truly joyful uh, things about ma- managing a system, whether it's a computer game or a distributed e-commerce system or whatever, is that once you have those fundamentals in place and you feel the leverage that you've created underneath you and you can start to modify that safely, it just... I, you know, I don't know. It's an incomparable feeling for me. So I do worry, and yet the band play, keeps playing on, you know. Yeah, and I, I can imagine that sometimes you also had, like, just different problems, right? I mean, having proper version control in place with with Git. Yeah. I mean, these days you just you just have it, right? You It's just yeah. there. You don't think and about it. then I, I guess teamwork was much harder, right? Yeah, we, you know, we used visual source safe, you know, and it was, we had to, we, we've corrupted the thing and had to bring Microsoft in to fix it under, you know, days before it was supposed to launch. And nowadays, every, like so many things are so much easier. Um, that, yeah, I don't miss any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, talking of today and your job at TomTom, so uh, what do you actually do there? Um, I guess most people just recognize TomTom from the classical navigation devices. Um, but I think that's not a, a fair perspective. Yeah. Um, what, what, what are you doing? Yeah, so, I mean, TomTom still su- sells a surprisingly large number of, of sat-nav devices for, for automobiles, but that's not really what we're focused on. I think, um, you know, TomTom has become a location technology company and they create a map. There's only a handful of maps in the world You know, Google has one, um, here has one, Apple has created one now. There's OpenStreetMap and there's TomTom's map. That alone is a huge uh, engineering challenge, you know. it's uh, And as the world gets faster, you know, it's expensive to maintain a map. And so uh, the technical challenges are, are deep and interesting there. Um, but in general, you know, we use maps and navigation algorithms and a live traffic algorithm. So we kind of understand how cars are moving around in the world and, and we can detect where there are traffic jams um, and search. Uh, so searching, especially for locations and then being able to display all the, these things. These sort of five components form a technology platform, which we sell in different forms. So we sell 
Uh, quite a bit in the automotive industry. So a lot of cars are running uh, some or all of our technology for navigation in the car. Um, and we also sell uh, in kind of to kind of uh, to big tech. Um, you know, it, any any business that can make more money essentially by having a more accurate representation of the world uh, to plan routes on, say, for any kind of like fleet or mobility um, based business, you know, you can really increase your bottom line by being smarter about, you know, where you send your vehicles when. And so it's quite an interesting business uh, selling it at, at different levels. You know, some some companies just buy the map and implement everything on their own. Other companies use uh, B2B APIs that we provide. Um, and it's, you know, the company the company's been around for a while and it's been through a couple different um, transformations. And then now it's kind of consolidating around this idea that these five kind of pillars of, of a location platform are super interesting to solve a ton of problems um, that are commercially interesting, but also really quite important to having a, a safer world and, uh, and a cleaner world. Okay, so you're in a way building, uh, let's say, a GOOS, right? Yeah, you could look at it that way. Yeah, and and you know we're, we're we really care about people's privacy. So even though you know, I mean Google Maps has really ex expanded our concept of what's possible, but it's terribly encumbered with legal restrictions and all kinds of strange privacy issues. And uh, we, we take a, quite a different approach um, to solving those kinds of problems. Okay, and you mentioned uh, OpenStreetMap as um, in a way a competitor. Uh, do you also have like an open version or open source components? Um, anything that like the typical developer could just just use? Uh, we don't we don't do that much open source. Um, it's kind of a constant topic uh, of discussion about what we should should you know contribute to the world, both in in terms of contributing to the projects that we use, which there are many, and also hosting our our own projects and. I'd say we're a little bit behind where I'd like to be on that, but I think also, you know, the nature of open source has really changed um, with the cloud, and uh, you know, the 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 very interesting open source projects these days are almost all infrastructure related, and that's not really where where we're working. Um, but it, yeah, it's funny you mentioned it. It's definitely it's a constant topic of discussion. What what should we open source? What not? You know, we do a lot of business with the automotive industry. The automotive industry is currently on a kind of a rapid scale up trajectory in terms of becoming um, much more sort of software oriented than they have historically. And so it's also a topic of conversation with them. You know, what do they want the stuff to be open source or not? And it's a uh, It's a slightly typically different not, story right? Typically not. <laughs> If I look at like I don't know BMW and so on, typically um, not. But it's changing. You know, it's yeah. uh, they're they're really like they're rewiring their DNA. Tesla are uh, have have really kind of changed the story. Tesla is rewiring them in a way, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like rewire or die is I think the fear, and uh, they're certainly hard at work. In fact, in our, the the office the Zalando office that we I think. Maybe both used to work in. Certainly, I used to work in, which is about 300 meters uh, from my apartment. Is now uh, the home of Car. Software. which is the Volkswagen software venture. So it's it's kind of interesting to see. And 
Do they publish anything openly? That I don't know. Okay. Because I can imagine like uh, something like Android um, for, for cars uh, would in a way make sense, right? I mean, uh, I think uh, Volkswagen and BMW, they all announce uh, that they kind of are working on operating systems. Um, but yeah. I think that's still the piece that is missing, right? Well, yeah. That, well, and so on the one hand, there is Android for cars, right? And Google Automotive is trying to be a thing and Google would like to run um, Android-based Google operated services in every car, and you can, and this, it's one of the things people want. Um, you know, these customers, drivers seem to to want it, but it's not necessarily what the rest of the world wants, and that's certainly that's I mean, yeah, yeah something that we're yeah something that we are very actively focused on is what what does that world look like, and uh, you know how can we essentially create the sort of in car experience that people want. Uh, without asking them to just completely give up their privacy. Yeah, um, I think that's also an, a nice niche as uh, BMW potentially don't want to give uh, Apple access to every hardware piece in the in the car. And I could imagine that right. as an independent player, uh, chances are quite high um, that you, you you get access to that or that you, you are picked as a partner um, yeah. in that place, right? Okay, interesting. Okay. And and you mentioned that you have over a thousand thousand engineers. I think um, at TomTom at Tom. is that right? Or yeah, I think it's over two thousand. I have about fifteen hundred or so well, total reports. Most of them are software engineers reporting into me. Okay, directly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We get a everybody gets a one on one about every three or four years. Um, <laughs> now it's a big it's a big work and. Uh, That seems to be directionally where where I've been headed for a while. This is kind of a change from where I started. Yeah, actually, I I think I remember um, the time at Zalando. You were kind of pushing very hard for perfect hiring processes um, and leaving leaving a good mark on all the people that we interview and so on. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess that's also part of your 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 job DNA right now, right? Yeah, uh, for sure. You know, we're, we're you know we're already pretty big. We're not trying to double or anything at the time in Zalando. I think we were about five or six hundred, and we wanted to get to two thousand, and we wanted to get to two thousand quickly. And uh, honestly, at, at at the start, I had no idea why we wanted to do that, um, and it seemed totally nuts to me. And it's like, uh, you know, is there that much to do? And then I. I later realized it was pretty smart <laughs> and I, you know, I was happy for the efforts that we had made to do a good job there. And I think we did do a good job. Um, but it is, you know, uh, the last thing that you want to do is just get warm bodies. You know, it's uh, the difference between a good colleague and a not so good colleague is, you know, I don't know, two X, three X, 10 X, 50 X sometimes. And it's, the network effects um, are profound. You know, some people talk about the no assholes rule. Um, and I'm, <laughs> I have a slightly more controversial version of that, which is the no turds rule. So it's like, imagine you're having a lovely garden party and you've got the swimming pool and you've got a live band and lovely buffet and everybody's dressed up. And if there's a turd in the pool, it's not a great party. <laughs> it doesn't matter 
all the other great stuff that you do, that turd is just radiating around it. And so um, it's kind of a similar thing when there's someone in a team who doesn't fit, it, that person is affecting everyone around them. And uh, no matter what you do, you know, it just takes a, it takes a big toll on everyone. And so, you know, it's obviously no secret, but being very, very selective about trying to hire um, people who are going to move the needle. And that doesn't, that does, you know, and that's not about culture fit necessarily. Um, in fact, I, I really like the idea of culture fit kind of troubles me. It doesn't, it's not really the path to increasing diversity and it tends to pull in groupthink. Um, and so, you know, I think, um, I think, uh, I think it's very interesting the way Amazon, for example, have rolled their leadership principles into how they hire. And, and I try to do something a little bit similar to that, um, but really try to build into the hiring process um, the, kind, the kind of principles that we want uh, to drive decision-making at every level. And I think, you know, I'm, I have some issues with some of the Amazon leadership principles and how they get applied. Um, but the idea of having leadership principles that are meaningful and, and kind of operational uh, is very powerful and establishing what, you know, what your company and the teams that you have built, what makes them tick and being able to kind of distill that down to something that you can discuss. And then using that as part of the hiring process is to see, kind of, do people connect to that? You know, do they agree? Are they coming to have fun or are they coming to have impact or are they, why are they coming? You know, and you really want to get people that, uh, who want to have impact um, and want to have impact in a way that is going to, you know, make a difference, a positive difference, both to the people on their team and, and the, the company overall. So you think that it's essential to find out who's, who, who wants to have impact, right? Um, yeah. How do you, how do you sort that out just through questions and, and asking or? Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the best way, I mean, I, I mean, the interviewing is totally flawed, you know, and uh, there is, I think, just no way to really interview uh, and expect better than a like 60 to 70% success rate in assessing. But certainly the most effective way that I know to really understand people is to just get them to tell stories about, um, their, you know, what they, what has gone well, what has not gone well. Um, actually, Marty Kagan, who I saw you had it on uh, recently in his new book, Empowered, he's a, he is a pretty interesting little test he recommends when interviewing people, uh, which is to ask people to stack rank. He's got five kind of principles uh, around product management. Um, and he sort of says, you know, uh, no one's great at all of these, but which, you know, which are you the best at? <laughs> and, and order them in terms of your capability. Um, the way I look at it really is that um, there's really three things that you want. And one is you need, you want people who want to show leadership. Um, and by leadership, I don't mean management and I don't mean like leading the company, but really leadership is, is the action when you, when you, when you, you when you, look at your aspirations or the company's aspirations or your team or your product's aspirations and this, and the current reality, the gap between those two is an opportunity to show leadership. 
and it's taking a risk somehow to close that gap. And that to me is what leadership actually is. And then what that means, whether you're, you know, a junior software engineer coming in or CEO of the company, you know, your aspirations are very, very different. But what I have found is that uh, people who, who don't want to fill that gap are not likely to show the kind of leadership that you want to really uh, be able ultimately to give people the autonomy that they both seek, you know, most people, uh, and that we also wish to give them, right? Um, because it brings out the best in people and it enables parallelism. And, um, you know, autonomy was a big theme at, at, uh, at Zalando and it still is for me, although I have to confess my thinking around it has changed a lot. But uh, I'm guessing we'll come back to that. But the other two things that are very interesting are um, essentially, you know, is this a person who can seek impact? And then is this a person who, you know, not only do they have the capabilities, but are they capable of acquiring whatever capabilities they need? And those two, three things, essentially leadership impact and developability are massive in terms of finding people who can move the needle. Okay. And um, from your Zalando experience, is there like some degree of autonomy you can define um, that is the right degree for everyone? Or is it then an no. individual individual decision that you have to take? So uh, I think the, you know, we at Zalando with Radical Agility, we treated autonomy like an input, by which I mean, if we put autonomy into the system, if we said to teams, you are autonomous, we believed that that would create the outcomes that we wanted. And that unfortunately was a little bit naive. Um, autonomy is more like an outcome and it comes from um, essentially trustworthiness and accountability. So uh, accountability for me means basically that you're uh, That you show positive commitment that what we're what we're trying to do can definitely be done. It's not like a, you know it's a stupid idea. Okay, I'll just kind of like mail this in and we'll show you that you were wrong. That's not positive commitment. Positive commitment is we think we can. We you know we might be wrong, but we believe it's possible and we're going to try. And then number two is is uh, is a, is around transparency. Like uh, being accountable means being transparency around. You know, what's your goal or goals? What's the plan and how's your progress? And kind of a proactive and um, kind of high judgment uh, transparency. Over transparency is not helpful, but exercising judgment for when people need to know what's going on. Everybody doing that in scale is, is very powerful. And that's what great teams do. Um, and then the third part of accountability is that you're kind of open to assessment. Either by, you know, sometimes it's self-assessment, sometimes it's peer assessment, sometimes it's leader assessment. Um, but if, if, if you, you just can only exist if you believe that there's no constructive feedback coming your way, then you're not getting better, right? And we need everybody to get better because certainly if you're working on something interesting and you're competing with other companies, they're getting better. And if you're not, you're, you know, it's kind of a waste of time. And so that accountability is key to enable autonomy. And then trustworthiness, you know, is just something that happens over time. 
and you it's it's kind of the output or the integral of your decision making process um when you are trusted and when you're following what for me are kind of the rules around accountability then it's very easy to say hey go solve this problem you know or figure out what problem to solve and how we're going to solve it knowing the greater context of how it's going to fit in um one, there was a, so the my boss when I left Zalando, uh, Jim Freeman, who's the CTO at Zalando now, had a great line which I carry with me, which is that autonomy has to be learned and it has to be earned, and that was missing from the original radical agility formulation, and that was an unfortunate omission. Uh, it cobbled the effort, honestly, um, but you know we all learned a lot. So I think I, one one thing that should be there then from the start is empowerment, right? That's something I, I learned at Zalando, um, that you immediately are able to work uh, in, a, in a nice environment um, and immediately are able to, to solve problem that this is worth a lot. Um, yeah. Not, not everyone can, can deal with having like full responsibility or autonomy on everything, but, but having the empowerment aspect is kind of a very very important fact, right? For sure. And uh, I think, you know, I, I really like the word empowerment, which Marty uh, Kagan has really kind of defined and it's power. It's quite powerful. Um, but one of the things is, you know, where it starts to get hard is that, that, that uh, the org also has to be structured in a way to enable empowerment. And that's, For me, that's actually one of the super interesting challenges of working at the scale of work that I'm currently in and, and also bigger orgs, but even smaller orgs, is how do we structure things so that you can create empowered teams? Um, and that, that for me is just an endlessly fascinating <laughs> problem, which is most of my day job these days. I can imagine that it's a bit easier at, at younger organizations, right? When there's not too much formed already or. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, it, ultimately it's, um, yeah, you get hung up in the, in the technical reality of the systems that have already built. They, they are constraints on what you can do organizationally. Um, and that does come with age, but not necessarily. I think it's, it's much more about how, kind of agile the tech stack is, honestly, than the age of the organization. And this podcast episode is kindly presented by MongoDB, the successor of the NoSQL movement. It's a very attractive, flexible, and simple database system that can be integrated in no time. They have a developer-first approach and build a system that is fun to use and scale to terabytes or petabytes. You don't have to think too much about your database structure. Just start playing with it and develop it on the go. I tried their new cloud product called MongoDB Atlas and all listeners of this podcast can easily do the same and test it in their favorite cloud, GCP, AWS or Azure. Custom tailored deployment without over-provisioning, sandbox for developers, organized in microservices and clear focus on developer fun and quality. To keep it simple, DevOps with more dev and less ops. Just go to cloud.mongodb.com and use the promo code PODCAST2020 to get started using their database as a service in the cloud. How do you still set the right goals? I mean, how do you give people hard problems to solve? How do you still make sure that it perfectly fits into your or aligns with your organization uh, strategy? Uh, do, you, do you believe in OKRs or... Mm -hmm. what, 
what what do you think is is sufficient well I, i mean honestly i think whatever works is fine you know um i uh i learned quite a bit about uh how amazon does kind of cascading goals and it's in a way mathematically perfect and and kind of amazing Uh, and I would love to do that, but when you actually try and do that in any existing org, it's simply too hard. And um, OKRs have the, have this kind of structural defect, which makes them difficult to cascade. Because if you start out with the idea that objectives and key results are fundamentally different, then it doesn't make sense to cascade and say, well, you know, the CEO's key results are her team members' objectives or something like that. But that cascade is very much what Amazon does uh, to great effect. And the mental model around that is very helpful. So Bezos talks about this a little bit in uh, one of his letters to shareholders when he talks about inputs and outputs. And it's a, a beautiful system. But, um, you know, we used OKRs at Zalando. We weren't very good at it yet. Everybody said it would take a few years. And uh, it took a few years <laughs> longer than that, I think, for me. At the start, I was not, I, I just wasn't intellectually prepared to think about it that hard. And I was severely, I know now, I was severely cobbled by the org structure, uh, where it was like, the, it was just an, I, you know, we called it tech, but it was basically an IT team that was that was serving the business. And, and we know that doesn't work now. Um, but we, so we rolled out OKRs at scale at TomTom this year. And I have to say that after doing it for five years, it was much, much easier. And um, the feedback was really great. And um, we just got better quarter by quarter. And so I think it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's not really which tool you use. It's that you do something, something to help people focus. Um, you just mentioned one uh, very regular scheme that um, there's an IT team serving the business um, and there's uh, like a, a strict separation between business owners, product owners and so on. Um, yeah. How do you think about a good solution for that? Or what, what would be a good solution for that? Um, because it's it's constantly um, generating friction, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's... Um It leads to a lot of kind of uh, organizational anti-patterns. Um, you know, one of the reasons why you want to empower teams and set teams up so that they are empowered is uh, you can look at it in a positive way or a negative way. And the positive way is that you want to give them, you want to put in that team's span of control um, everything that it needs in order to succeed. And you give them control over their destiny and you, you know, you set the context. And if you've hired great people, they'll constantly amaze you with their creative solutions. The negative view of that is that you want to kind of remove the excuses that people have for not being able to achieve impact. We would have done a great thing, except that, you know, this other team was busy with a different set of priorities and maybe the OKRs weren't aligned or maybe there weren't OKRs or, or what, you know, whatever, there's a million reasons. Um, and so, you know, I think the setting, well, first of all, you know, if you want to work for a tech company, There's got to be tech everywhere in the company. There can't be an IT team. Any company with an IT team is, by definition, not a tech company. 
uh, in my opinion. And so then it, it comes down to like, okay, well, what, what would it mean to have software engineers in the HR department, software engineers in the finance department? Would that make you uh, a tech company? And I, in a way, I kind of want to say yes. Um, but it's like, okay, well, then do we need HR leaders who, you know, can lead software teams? That seems like it's hard enough to get great HR leaders, let alone asking them to lead software teams. And that's where the org design question gets quite hard. And there are different approaches the different companies take. There's kind of the Amazon way, there's kind of the Apple way, and there's kind of the Google way. And they're all related but different. Google tends to have more matrix structures, encourage collaboration. Apple is sort of known for more functional structures where they really try to put experts together. Um, and then Amazon, which is also similar to what Zalando did, uh, tries to uh, empower holistic leaders that own kind of commercial product and engineering together. Um, and there isn't a right answer. My, I, I kind of like the Amazon way, and it might be because I understand it uh, better than the other two, uh, based on just knowing senior people, more senior people from Amazon. But I think, you know, what um, when I talk to smaller companies that are starting to feel growing pains, uh, I have noticed that they're very hesitant to give up uh, the idea of the idea of an IT team. Um, and it is exactly because they're worried about the leadership. And I think it's very important to start on that journey because what it forces you to do is something that's very important to do anyhow, which is to kind of calibrate um, the performance model across the company. If the only way that you can get a fair shake uh, as a software engineer is if you report into the CTO or whatever, that's kind of limiting, right? Um, there are organizational, you know, sort of techniques for how you can actually get leaders together and calibrate and talk about people and uh, write down expectations that, that apply no matter where they are. And um, doing that is super important and it enables much more organizational flexibility. And, um that, you know, that organizational flexibility is kind of everything. You know, there's uh, the, the amazing book, um, Thinking in Systems, a primer by Donella uh, Meadows. She says that there are three uh, features that all successful systems have. One is that they are comprised of self-organizing autonomous agents, you know, and <laughs> also called teams. They're highly resilient uh, against, you know, various things. And that is two things, you know, one is money in the bank and two is like a great culture. Those are the ways companies are resilient. And number three is that they re reform and restructure kind of on demand uh, to solve whatever challenge they have. And that's very often where companies break down. They don't want to change the org structure, you know. It's like it feels very expensive. They got to go through change management programs. It becomes kind of Game of Thrones with the senior teams. You move things around. But overcoming that so that you can just like, hey, we are going to spin up an effort now. It's going to be light and fast. And we're going to pull people from around the org, making that easy so that people uh, kind of expect it, you know, is really, really important. And you know, to for that to happen, you got to be able to put IT anywhere if you want to be a tech company. Okay. That's, <laughs> that's a long answer. That's, yeah, but a good a good one. Um, 
Um, but you look like a guy who has who has uh, principles in his his business life. Um, what what are your key key principles? Do you, do you have any? Uh, it's, yeah, it's funny. You know, when I I had a manager once who took me out for beer and said, "I think you got to figure out what you're what do you stand for, what do you believe in." Because um, from you know, I've suffered from imposter syndrome for a good chunk of my career, like most people. And, uh, you know, I, I, at various points, I've stood for different things, you know, like being able to pay the mortgage, making sure my children have somewhere to live. Um, but I do I, I have picked up a couple. One one uh, I got from the really great book, uh, Beyond Entrepreneurship uh, by Jim Collins. Um, and he he is actually that it was republished recently in 2.0. And he talks about the principle and it completely resonated with me. And so I adopted it and I've started to, to consciously apply it. And I was never passed up the opportunity to be generous. Um, and I, I just, I love that. And I, as I looked back in my own life, uh, I was generally generous and I was surrounded by generous people. And, uh, you know, you can't take it with you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's certainly one. Um I think I also, you know, I, when I was a student, I, you know, I wanted to be a physicist. I was also really interested uh, in philosophy and um, spent some time trying to understand, you know, what it was like, how do, how does one become happy? I wasn't always the happiest kid. Uh, I was kind of serious uh, sometimes. And and often in trouble as well. <laughs> I was a naughty, naughty kid. It's like, um, and I, I I think another principle that I've picked up since then is that happiness comes through finding meaning. So don't seek happiness. Seek meaning. Seek to do things which um, affect the people around you in a positive way. Help them grow. Help other people get through experiences. Try to you know. Part of being uh, a manager and developing people is giving them tasks that are maybe like a little bit harder than they think they can do. Task is not really the right word. Challenge. Get people to stretch a little bit. Not If, if they have to stretch too far, uh, that's not going to work. They'll, they will be dissatisfied. But pushing people a little bit uh, will give them a meaningful experience. They will understand their own limits better. And they will overcome something. And that process of overcoming uh, is one of the channels of, of meaning. So seek meaning, uh, seek meaning and happiness uh, will follow is another one of my personal principles. And then uh, I also believe strongly in loving what you do and doing what you love. And uh, when those things converge, which I think for many people in our industry, that's pretty common. And we're very lucky. You know, we're not really fighting uh, day by day to survive, but we get to work on sometimes beautiful intellectual problems, you know, and um, simplify the complex and loving that and loving what you do every day for me is a principle. And uh, if I'm not loving what I do for, you know, obviously everybody has a bad week, but uh, if I don't love it, I have to move on. And I encourage other people to do. There's so much interesting work out there. There's so many great companies. So like it, it's we really live in a golden age as technologists. So if you are not loving your job, you should go. One thing that really drives us as engineers is uh, we all want to learn, right? Um, and uh, I think that's oh, that's essentially what what drives me as well. 
and uh, like you seem to be a, a keen learner as well. What what is what is your latest learning that you would pass to every every other engineering leader and CTO out there? Uh, yeah, there's a few, but I think the I think the most important learning for me and the one that I wish that I had gotten to sooner in my career was basically the whole intellectual tradition that started with the book called The Goal and uh, kind of progressed through lean thinking and into DevOps. And then it's kind of culminated uh, with the book Accelerate and the so-called Accelerate KPIs. Um, I would recommend, I think The Goal is one of the most profound intellectual works for business leaders of the 20th century. I think it is extremely important that everybody read that book um, it will, it is, you know, it's certain parts are super cheesy. He's not a great writer, but the depth he goes to as he takes you through the, the kind of intellectual challenge of, uh, applying what he calls the theory of constraints to a factory is, it is meaningful and it will change the way that you think. And those ideas have propagated to the present day. So it was written in 19, published in 1984, um, in different forms and was highly influential. The book, uh, The Phoenix Project was based on, was modeled after the goal, although I think the goal is probably a better read. And then um, Nicole Forsgren and Jez Humble and a few other folks uh, wrote this book, Accelerate, which summarizes the, the kind of uh, academic work that they did around where they identified basically a causal relationship between three KPIs uh, and both business performance and cultural health in a company. And then there's a fourth one where they didn't establish causality, um, but it's also important. And so it's basically how many times you deploy per day, how quickly can you solve a problem when it crops up, um, how many releases fail, and uh, how long does it take basically to push or essentially push a release or from, you know, from commit to live or whatever. I mean, it, it, people get bogged down in the details, but it's really, it's applying this kind of ba small batch size factory physics to the development of code and the flow of value. And ultimately it turns out that the, that the speed at which any company can deliver value is profoundly more important than anything else. I mean, it, it, because that value starts to compound exponentially, the, the, the benefits of going fast over time are, are the human brain is not really uh, very good at intuitively understanding that. And a lot of people think that there's like this speed, cost, quality, iron triangle trade-off. That's only for product or for projects. For products, that doesn't apply. And the importance of being able to go fast and iterate quickly It, it just it simply cannot be uh, overstated. I mean, it's it's massively important, and big players know this. And then, you know, twenty percent uh, of their teams working on uh, essentially improving daily work, which is improving flow. So having having like an like an internal development platform in a way where you are able to preview what you what you're working on immediately and so on with real data. I guess that's what you, what you what you're aiming towards, right? Something like that. You know, it's, it, I mean, what I've learned at TomTom where we have a lot of onboard embedded C++ code and, and a very, it's very complicated uh, software system uh, that runs inside the car. You know, the, the same principles that apply to building an e-commerce system or the same practicalities of building an e-commerce system don't apply, but the same principles do. 
So understanding essentially how you can get fast feedback so that you can move on and remove uh, essentially wait time in the value stream. You know, I, I ignored this for years because I was like, I don't want to work in a factory. I don't want to, I mean, like, this is creative work where, you know, this is, and I read the goal and realized, holy shit, you know, this is physics. It has nothing to do with factories. It has everything to do with how cues work. Um, and and then I realized that, you know, the most joyous moments of my programming career were essentially when I was able to move fast. And one of my prerogatives as a leader is to prioritize that everybody can move fast. And this is very, very important. And then what the Accelerate KPIs help us do is actually measure it in a way that's not some bullshit, you know, lines of code measurement, but it's it's real, you know, and the, the causal connection that they demonstrated is, is profound. And any leader who is not embracing this is missing a big opportunity, both, you know, for themselves personally and, and for the people who work for them. It's a huge deal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's easy to, to to actually feel if you just think about I don't know yourself doing a commit into into some system, and just being able to see the result um, in 20 minutes from now, and uh, having to to like potentially pick a coffee uh, uh, and 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 distract yourself um, and do something different. Uh, like that, <laughs> the brain isn't structured for context switching, right? I mean, computers aren't, aren't, yeah. aren't structured for context switching, but the brain is 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 neither, right? On that, you know, there's a reason why, for example, the inventors of the Go programming language focused on the speed of compile time. You know, it's because however long that takes, you're multiplying it by very large numbers all the time. And and then it becomes, you know, small wins are significant. And then, but I think the other thing is, you know, you, when you realize that there are people working on things that there's no plan ever for this code to go live anywhere for any customer ever, or nor is it helping other people go faster. It's like, why are we doing this? It's the moral equivalent of buying you know, tons of copper cable in the factory that you don't have a product for. You're just, you're just burning money and uh, missing opportunity. And, you know, it's like the grown up part of me embrace this. That was kind of like the moment it's like, okay, actually management is not something to fear or loathe. Management is actually super important. And the integration between management and engineering is a superpower. And that, you know, you find all these managers who want to call themselves leaders, It's like, yeah, you got to be leading some of the time, but actually management is the day-to-day -day thing that's uh, that's pretty important. And certainly for me, most of my career, I, I either ignored it or disdained it. Um, so, oops, sorry, sorry, great managers I had in the past. <laughs> Didn't appreciate you enough. <laughs> so perfect timing for my last question and my, my little surprise for you. So, um, we now have the chance to, to boot up my old Windows 98 laptop um, and start the very, very first version of The Sims um, with a feature that has been removed in the final version. So uh, it's the time machine feature. And we now go back <laughs> into the year 1999 uh, when you obviously heavily working on the first release. And um, we now had the chance to observe the tiny virtual version of yourself uh, for a while. And um, now you get the chance to whisper something into young Eric's ears. What would it be? Um... Yeah, good question. Probably, 
I am. Believe in yourself? Maybe that's not very cheesy. I spent a lot of time really self-doubting. Um, certainly my principles. Uh, but I guess maybe the right thing to say in this moment is, Rosebud. <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> Figuring out the rosebud sheet of life would be all right. <laughs> or buy Amazon stock. Buy Amazon stock, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, thanks a lot, Eric. Um, it was, was a Thank pleasure you, to talk to you and uh, learned course. a lot about, about management again. And um, I think that was a, was a very nice spin um, uh, through all the different levels of IT management. So um, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to hear the, the final version of the podcast and looking forward to talk to you in the future again. Hey, me too. Thanks. I look forward to catching up in real life someday again. Yeah, <laughs> let's hope for that. Yeah. 2021, we're ready. 2021, we're, we're at it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks a lot. Thanks again to our sponsors, Fastly and MongoDB. To learn more about the Fastly services and get first-class support, just visit fastly.com slash alphalist. And to try the new cloud product of MongoDB called MongoDB Atlas, just go to cloud.mongodb.com and use the promo code PODCAST2020 to get started for free.